Okay, this is episode two, and this is probably going to be the hardest one that I'm going to talk about for two reasons. I was actually quite conflicted when I bullet-pointed this on whether or not I wanted to talk about it or, again, bury it, because I'm going to be digging up some memories that, over the years, I've buried through drink, alcohol, drugs violence uh, and eventually led me to spend a bit of time in prison but whilst I was in prison I met a pastor who said you know one day you're gonna have to confront your demons so I suppose that was the overwhelming factor as to why I wanted to talk about what I'm about to talk about today and this one covers mental and physical abuse by parents ex-partners an alcoholic stepfather you know so So I'm going to take you back to one of my earliest memories as a child. I couldn't have been older than eight, but I was probably younger, six maybe. I remember having this die-cast little, um, you know, matchbox-type car thing, but it was a a caravan set, and the caravan had a canopy, an awning that you could pull out. And it was stuck. So being a kid, you know, you, you don't really know what you're doing so I put my teeth to it and tried to bite it out and it led to me pulling one of my front teeth out ripping it out now normal parents you know I was screaming there was blood I was in pain just ripped a tooth out you'd expect normal parents would console you know comfort their child you know there was a lot of blood I was scared but not me not my parents you know I got a hiding, a beating for it, and then I heard, and this memory sticks out clearer than any memory in my head, that after that, they said, oh, you know, I heard my stepfather, who's an alcoholic, we'll go into that in another, uh, a little bit later, but, you know, he said, oh, he probably did it for attention, the attention-seeking little shit, you know. So that's the earliest memory, and I think for me, that's probably where my mental health problem started in truth because life really didn't get any much better or any more improved than that from there as I grew up but being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder uh, it's uh, one of the biggest keys is abandonment and it's interesting when I looked looked into like looked back on my life and the amount of people that have supposed to have been there for me have actually abandoned me. So I did develop a fear of being abandoned, which is why I didn't let people close. And then when I did let people close, they'd then leave, they'd disappear. You know, like I said, um, I had an alcoholic stepfather and I suffered many beatings. I mean, I, grew, I was a kid in the 80s, I was a teenager in the 90s, it was a completely different era in the 80s a lot was hidden a lot was swept under the carpet I was I learned to lie as well as a child very early it's like oh where did you get that black eye from oh walked into a cupboard oh how did you bruise your arm oh I fell down the stairs oh how did you like get bruises on your legs oh playing football you know silly little things like that because you didn't want to get your parents into trouble you still had this duty of honour or respect or care to protect 
your parents and you know that really was a difficult thing looking back to comprehend how how I even managed to do that at such a young age so um, I also remember one one night in particular uh, like I said me my stepfather was a raging alcoholic he was a bricklayer builder in the 80s he used to work disappear work come home with no money but stinking of like a brewery and I remember like I had a younger brother uh, at the time um, and as siblings you know you squabble you fight you argue and I remember one night he come home and me and my brother had been fighting squabbling as usual giving our mum a bit of gip, gip you know what I mean and <laughs> he laid into me I mean proper laid into me I remember a steel toe cap punk to the head being thrown from bunk bed to bunk bed just absolutely laid into and my brother not touched later in life I found out why I was not my stepfather's firstborn my brother was and he was in fact the golden child and I, I then went to find on find out about my real dad but that's another episode I think so yeah so I suffered a lot of beatings and the mental abuse that was just I was never encouraged to do anything I was good at a lot of things I was a very good clarinet player flute player saxophone player very good at football I had teachers telling them telling my the Tina, I'll refer to her as Tina for now because I don't believe she deserves the, the the title mother or mum to me. You know, so Tina, you know, she, she had parents and other other parents and teachers and uh, coaches and football managers and mu- music teachers telling her, you know, that I was I was bright, I was good, I was clever, I was quick learner, all this. I, I had intelligence. But I was always told, no, you'll you'll never make it. Uh, You know, you need to, like, when you leave school, you need to get a proper job, scrubbing toilets, shoveling shit, stuff like that, you know, just, that's mental abuse. I mean, me, I I absolutely encourage my daughter to do the absolute best she can, and I will help her achieve what she wants to do, you know. So that mental abuse really played havoc with me until only only very recently actually it was only within the last three maybe four years that I finally got that voice out of my head that every time I wanted to do something I'd always hear Tina saying hey, you won't you won't get you might that might pay the bills you get a proper job and no you know it took me a long long time you got to think I mean I've only just recently turned 41, so we go back four years, we're talking like 37, 38 years old, before I finally was able to cut Tina's voice out of my head. You know, that's the impact that that upbringing had on me. And it scares me how many other men, or even women today that are my age, that probably went through the same thing and as a result became heavily reliant on alcohol or heavily dependent on drugs or were in and out of prison or couldn't accept someone loving them or trust anybody enough to confide in. So that that was going back then and growing up. Now, 
going to the more recent times as an adult, um, still not being diagnosed at this time, um, I was, I went, I, I, I been to jail, come out, and a couple of months later, I was back up on another sentence for another breach, and me then relationship was obviously broken down, and two days before I was due to be sentenced, I woke up and found one of my mates dead on the sofa, the mate that was putting me up because I was already been on the street, and I found him dead on the sofa, and then two days later I was sent to jail for three months. I couldn't even say goodbye to him properly. When I came out from that prison sentence, again, I went completely off the rails, alcohol, drugs, violence. It was just, that was my life. I mean, going as far back as I remember, violence was always key. Drink and drugs were always in the house, you know. Tina and Gary were often drunk. Tina, later on in life, after she after Gary left, or she left him, you know, whatever that side of the story is, she was into drugs. So it, it was normal for me to see it, you know. I mean, I even remember when I was 17, it's like, oh, you know, Tina kind of me goes, oh, if you want to experiment with drugs, let me get them for you. I mean, where the fuck parent does that shit, man? Come on. I mean, that's just crazy. So, yeah, so you can see how it flits backwards and forwards, but fits. Anyway, so I come out of prison, I, was, <clears throat> I went off the rails, drink drugs, violence. And then, uh, by chance, I came across... Just a random comment when I was trying to do me internet radio station, and uh, you know, I won't lie, I thought, wow, she's, she's gorgeous, you know what I mean? So I started commenting, and we did a bit of comment back and forth, and we added each other, and then, then it went to messages before a long time, and it took me a long a bit of effort to get a phone number, and then we started talking, and then we arranged to meet, and then. Uh, we changed the meeting and I actually ended up just thinking, do you know what? I need to change my life. Maybe a move would be the best thing. So I moved hundreds of miles away up to South Yorkshire and I was with it for five years. But the thing is, this is where she was abusive as well. She used my mental health against me even more so when I finally got the diagnosis. And I really don't feel there is anybody out there really that says, you know, I love and support you no matter what. They don't really mean it because they, you know, in my experiences, even my parents didn't stick about, you know what I mean? Even my dad's still a stranger to me and I try, I, I, put, I make more of an effort with my dad, my real dad, than he's ever done with me. It's always me that texts him. It's always me that calls him. It's always me that messages him. I, you know, I don't, I don't get nothing from him. I don't get a, a text, how you doing? How you feeling? And I, I don't get nothing. You know, we've been planning on like him visiting or me coming, going down to visit him for the last three years and it's never happened. There's always been an excuse or he wants to piss off on holiday. You know what I mean? So again, I still feel abandoned. He was my dad. Now, going back to when I was a child, it says a lot when uh, Tina's own brother, my uncle, actually petitioned the courts. So I think a total of eight times I was told 
in, in order to get custody of me because he could see the abuse that was happening. You know, but back then, the courts were a different kettle of fish. So it was a very, very torrid childhood, to be honest. But, you know, going back to this move and turning my life around, I met this this lass and, you know, um, once I got the diagnosis, she changed. Her behaviour changed. She used to make she used to make out that she was the victim because I did because before I didn't know what it was what was wrong with me and I'd try and talk to her and she'd go she'd you know blow it off and go well, it's all right it's all right you don't need to talk to me but you know one of the biggest biggest keys anybody with any mental health issue can do is talk if we talk and we're listened to do you know it's therapy to us you know so I hope like you that people out there take that at least from this you know if someone tries to talk to you listen they want to be listened to they don't want to be judged they don't want sympathy either I'm telling you now they I never wanted sympathy for anything I went through I didn't want to be oh poor you sorry you went through that I don't want to hear that shit I just want to go do you know what I get it I get why you were like you were I get why you struggle I now understand why you fight so hard to to make a difference, you know. And anyway, with the, with this lass, you know, we had five years, but she started just dropping me, you know, just disappearing. And sometimes it would be for months, three, four months, and then she'd rock up or an email. She blocked me on her social media. We were in a relationship. She blocked me on her social media. So it was like. I'm going to keep control of you. I'm going to keep on this piece of string. And she knew I was so emotionally attached that she could do it. She had me. Do you know what I mean? She knew I was 100% in love with her. I was, it wasn't... It, it was real, you know. It was banging love. I mean, I, I would have done anything for this girl. In fact, actually, the reason I started acting and started being creative again... You know, from the age when I was seven writing poetry in adult life, I became an actor. I started writing, I started doing music again, was because of her. Because she had a pretty shit life. I'm not going to go into her, her business, but she had a shit life. And it was like she was sent, I felt like she was sent to save me and I was sent to save her. And together we were going to be this ultimate, yeah, fuck you to all those that fucked us up sort of thing. But it didn't work like that. She kind of like just kept flipping. And every time I tried to say, look, you know, you're making me feel bad. It was like, oh, shut up. You know what I mean? It's like, no, 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 this is just your head. You know, it's all in your head. It's you. I don't know what Danny I'm going to get from one day to the next. And I said, all I want to do is talk and be listened to and you understand. Then I got the diagnosis. The borderline personality disorder. At first they thought I was bipolar. But... You know, uh, in the words of psychiatrists, she actually reckons uh, BDP is worse than bipolar because it happens so quick. It can happen on literally like, like a flick of a switch, you know, where bipolar you get extended periods of ups, extended periods of downs. Yeah, and, and the sign that it's going to change is pretty obvious in many cases. Whereas BPD, there's no warning. It's just an instant trigger and you flip. So she started using that as an excuse. Um, it was a reason to her, but it was an excuse. It was an excuse to keep control of me. 
and she did. She had control of me, e even up until I mean, I, I, like uh, the last time I see her was just a little over two years ago. Um, she disappeared for about three or four weeks again. Turned up at my door. I'm sorry, in tears. I don't want to hurt you anymore. I love you. I'm I'm sick of doing this to you. You're you're such a such a brilliant bloke and all that. Like, I'm so lucky to have you. All that spiel. We had three fantastic days of sorting everything out. And then on Friday, she was due to go back to her mum's. Love you. I'll see you. I'll see you um, on Monday. It might be Tuesday because the kids are off school. But um, it'll be Monday or Tuesday. Love you. Got on the bus. As last I see her. Two years. I never got a reason why. I never got a sorry. I never got an it's an over. She never said it was over. She just left. I was abandoned again, you know, and that hurt. And that led me to go and uh, attempt suicide again. And it was a very, very dark time. And I reached out and I thought, Do you know what, actually, I got to the point, thank thankfully, by the grace of whatever, you know, if you believe in God, God fate, destiny, whatever, whilst I was actually going through setting up the execution of the suicide, I was going to hang myself. I got a text from my daughter. Dad, Dad, I did better than I thought in my exams. And I just broke. At that point, I broke. And I didn't text her back because I didn't want her to know what I was doing. And I picked up the phone to the police and I said, look, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm sat under a tree. I've got a, a rope. I'm ready to fucking hang myself. And, you know, and paramedics were sent. You know, I was taken home. Paramedics sat, sat with me for a couple of hours. Bless them. You know what I mean? And then that's when I thought, I've got to do something positive, more positive, rather than keep going through this cycle of, ups, downs, suicide ups. I've got to do something positive. That last suicide attempt woken something in me to think, what can I do? I know what I can do. I can, I can tell my story and I can tell you fucking everything. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to hide nothing. Right? There's episodes where I'm even the bad guy, you know, so I'm just going to be as candid as fuck on this, you know, it, because in my experiences, those that say I'm all right, but they're not really all right, they don't get help. If they sit there and go, no, do you know what? I'm completely fucked up. I need fucking help. Guess what? They get the help. You see, so we can't sugarcoat this anymore. We cannot sugarcoat this anymore. By sugarcoating it and pretending everything's okay, Three in every four suicides are men, you know. But going back to this suicide, um, I, a couple of days later when I got my head straight, I actually phoned the police and said, you know what, I think I've been a victim of domestic abuse in a relationship. Oh, this has really pissed me right off. They come and took my statement and we went through a checklist. Oh, God, I love fucking checklists when it comes to mental health and fucking domestic abuse. Anyway, I ticked every box except one. One box. There was no evidence of coercive behaviour on her part. So do you know what they said? That's right, folks. They went, 
sorry, we cannot help you. We cannot bring out the book. But here's the fucking crux of it, right? And I looked into this. You can go and check it yourself. Go and have a look at how many cases of domestic violence for a bloke versus a woman against a woman. And they're banged up on just one accusation. They do time on just one accusation. I mean, that is fucking ridiculous in my book. Actually, that boils my piss, that does. That we're supposed to be equal. The law's supposed to be unbiased and balanced. Yet in that instance and many others, it clearly isn't. And I think that is actually another contributing factor to, as to why men take their own lives as well. I think if we actually looked a little bit deeper, I bet some of them suicides are because they they were in an abusive relationship with a female was abusive and they couldn't get the help because of this tick box system. So that's another thing I'm going to be looking at campaigning against. The government needs to change this tick box system. It needs to be if there's just one accusation, then it can be looked at and, and charges can be bought, like they did with, with domestic violence when they said, well, if the, if the female victim doesn't give a statement, we can't press charges. Now they've changed that. It's zero tolerance. We, we, can, we can prosecute without your statement anyway if we've got the evidence, you know. But fancy that. So... You know, I'm going to talk about like how, how um, services have let me down and, and praise actually the services that helped me in another episode dedicated just to that. But as you can see, I have been let down again. Again, I've turned to help from these people that are supposed to help. They're supposed to uphold the law. They're supposed to protect life. I was driven to suicide and they said they couldn't do anything. Now, what would they have done if I left a note or a text or an email to someone and said, look, I'm killing myself and this lass is responsible. She drove me to it. Do you think they would have then done something about it then? Damn straight, they probably would. Manslaughter or whatever it is, you know, um, I don't know what, what, what it actually falls under. But yeah, damn straight, they probably would. But it's too late because I'm gone and everybody that actually did care enough about me and now I'm going to have to live with the pain that I'm no longer there. And she'd have to live with the anger of people against her because she drove me to it. So this is, this is something else that's got to be changed. We cannot, allow, we cannot allow the law to only act once a life has gone. The law needs to act whilst there's still life to preserve. I always thought law was to preserve life. You know, it doesn't seem that way when it comes to domestic abuse when it's the opposite, when it's a female giving a male um, abuse. And I think I think it's because we're still, in society, we've still got it in our heads that men are strong. We are emotionless. We don't cry. We're, we're not weak. We're tough. We're hard. We can take that shit. Bollocks. Absolute fucking bollocks. Because I was the one under a tree with a fucking rope round the branch ready to fucking hang myself. So no, men can't. That's why there's more men that commit suicide than there are women. That's a fact. No one can argue it. No one can debunk it. It's a fact. It's statistically recorded anywhere you look. So that's, that's why I thought, you know, I'm just going to tell you my story. I'm going to tell you little bits over the 10 parts. You know, it may extend because obviously I'm bringing up more memories. But again, I will just leave you with a final thought on this. If you are a man that is suffering domestic abuse, go to the police, get out. You have as much fucking rights as a woman does, okay? I did, I did warn people at the beginning that I, this is men, male mental health. It's a man living with mental health issues, a man that's been abused. 
physically and mentally and by and domestically so i'm not taking away please don't hate me don't get angry or anything i'm not taking anything away from what happens to women in domestic violence situations but this is not the statistic i'm i'm fighting against i'm fighting against male mental health statistics and male suicides and males being victims of domestic abuse as well so please don't think i'm taken away from you because there may be a series two where i actually talk about the other side as well so you know i'm going to keep it nice and balanced but fight for the things that i've been through so again this will continue to be just a candid me just ranting on basically i mean that's all i'm really doing i'm just ranting on to a podcast and and hoping that if anything clicked with anybody, you know, there are ways to get in touch with me. I'm on Facebook. You will see the post on Facebook, I'm sure. And you can message me. You know, I'm happy to text WhatsApp. You can call me. I can call you if you haven't got credit. It's not a problem. Because at the end of the day, I'd like to know that you, you survive too. You know, because I don't want to hear another statistic. I don't want to see another post that a man's broken to the point that he felt that he couldn't go on anymore so he took his own life because for him the pain stopped but for the rest of us the pain goes on till we go you know so that's what I wanted to just basically say you know and for me um, as a closing point on this I think I really do today find it very difficult to trust i find it very difficult to love i don't believe that i can be loved and that makes it really difficult in a relationship setting i'm paranoid as a result because everyone that i've let close has let me down they have betrayed me they have abandoned me they have hurt me in the worst possible ways but on the, on the plus side, I've never ever retaliated in the sense that I've cheated or I've abandoned them or I've hurt them emotionally or mentally or physically because I've got these issues because they are my issues and I own them, okay? And this is me confronting my demons by just putting my story out there. You know, this is as real as it's going to fucking get. And I'm telling you now, you think this is bad? I've got a a couple coming up that are going to be a little bit raw, a little bit close to the bone. But it's the way it's got to be done, in my opinion. It's got to be done this way. It's got to be the rawest, most honest, most candid talk. Because if we sugarcoat shit, it's still shit. You know? It's still going to taste like shit underneath so that's that's why i'm doing this so this has been episode two and it's all about the abandonment issues so again i'm just going to say you can find me on facebook you drop me a message i'm not on facebook all the time but my messenger is always on so if you want to talk if you want to reach out search daniel brooks it's got brooksy on there uh, the pictures are say, pr- the same as what's on my podcast profile picture. You can find me. So drop me a message. You know, I check my messages regularly, the spam and the people you may know as well. So, and I check them a couple of times a day, so I won't miss your message. So if you want to talk, feel free to do so, because I'd rather you live and survive 
and come out fighting than feel that your whole world's ended and you want to kill yourself, okay? Till the next episode, take care, guys. Thanks for listening.